and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the world. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. Um, if it's OK with you, what I thought I would do in my reflections uh, is look at uh, the challenges and opportunities for Labour. We are living through a cost of living crisis. The term now is almost like a cliche. You know, each day you awake and you hear the headline cost of living. Oh, we're living through a cost of living crisis. Um, And if you are in opposition, that provides opportunities and some risks. So I'll be uh, looking at that uh, very shortly. Uh, We've got uh, an amazing range of uh, questions from uh, all of you. Why do I say all of you? Of course, it's not all of you. Um, I've plucked a few out from, uh, if it was all of you, we'd be here for weeks. But we're going to have a few questions, which again, range widely, but reflect urgently topical themes. Uh, Before all of that, just a quick notice for those of you who are on the brand new Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, it being the start of another month, a bonus podcast should have arrived for you, uh, this time looking at the 1992 election. And I might even refer to the 1992 election in my thoughts today about labour, inflation and cost of living because it is an election which came to define so much and uh, one of the most consequential in modern times uh, for reasons I go on to uh, in the reflections on 1992. It was also a dark drama, 1992. It, It was conducted in a very cold early spring. It was April the 9th, 1992, when the election was held. An unexpected result with all kinds of twists and turns. And of course, one of the running themes, it was a personal tragedy for Neil Kinnock, uh, who fought that second election he had fought and lost. And the seeds were sown for the path towards new Labour, We have the seeds being sown for the divisions uh, within the Tory party over Europe. It's curious, really, when you look back, people reflect on general elections and say the great big ones were 45, 97, 79. And of course, they were. Um, But some of these more overlooked ones were epic in their significance. Anyway, If you join that Patreon uh, version of Rock and Roll Politics, you'll get that one. And what else have we done? February 74, really cinematic. And 1983, uh, the election which provided the framework for Thatcherism to really take off um, and a slaughter for Labour, which partly explains 92, actually, when I think about it. Uh, So that's, oh, yeah, there are other things, you know, uh, rock and roll politics, mugs and all kinds of things. So over to you on that one and over to all of us now uh, for reflections on where we are. And if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to look at the uh, situation partly from the perspective of the Labour opposition. Because there is no doubt that if you are in opposition during a period where living standards are falling and inflation is soaring, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got to be careful about soaring. It's not the 1970s where inflation went up to 20, 30 percent. But the energy bills, the food bills, we're all noticing it. I mean, I spend a lot on mushrooms and my bill on mushrooms is going up big time. Um, but, the, you know, the fundamental ones are being reported on a daily basis. Now, what makes this so interesting from a labour perspective is this. There is some evidence uh, that Keir Starmer and his shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, are following the Blair Brown rule book in the build up to 1997. There are good reasons to take a close look at the Blair Brown rule book for 1997. The most obvious is it's a rare example of Labour winning from opposition and winning big. So you would be utterly neglectful not to see if there are lessons to be learnt now. And there are some. Um, the uh, Blair Brown 97 uh, rule book shows you how to avoid some of the traps you can fall into, or when I say you, Labour can fall into, when it comes to tax and spend at general elections. And for those of you who listened to the 1992 talk on Patreon, you'll see Labour yet again fell into tax and spend traps in that 1992 election. Um, so there are lessons to be learned about how Gordon Brown in particular, as shadow chancellor in the build-up to 97, avoided all, not just some, all the traps. And there are some lessons to be learned, as there is from Harold Wilson, who won from opposition in 64, about the use of language which isn't going to scare a single voter. Whatever the newspapers do, no one is going to be frightened of in the new Labour era, modernisation, new competence versus incompetence, and so on. Wilson too, the white hot heat of the technological revolution, modernisation, technology. Um, it's a way of appealing or not scaring a part of the electorate conditioned to be scared of Labour. And clearly, Keir Starmer has followed that. His, his three guiding terms are uh, respect, prosperity, and, oh God, what's the other one? Um, I can't remember suddenly. There you go. There's an ominous sign. I've been quoting it often in recent podcasts and elsewhere. Um, but all three, it'll come to me probably during the podcast, all three, uh, no one can be against. If the BBC went to do a vox pop in Basildon, you're not going to hear someone come up and say, oh, that Keir Starmer, he's in favour of prosperity. I don't want to be prosperous. I want to be poor. You know, it, these are safe terms. Now, that's fine because uh, Labour in particular, with a broadly hostile media, and a Conservative Party that usually learns the art of brutal campaigning, not always, but sometimes, you have to be on your guard. However, there was one uh, rule that Gordon Brown also followed to avoid any tax bombshell, tax and spend trap, and, and that is not to pledge to spend a penny that couldn't be accounted for. And therefore, it limited hugely what Labour could say in the build-up to 1997. I remember David Blunkett, who was pretty much on side, really, 
you know, uh, that new Labour project. He wasn't at the heart of the Blair-Brown uh, thing, but he was shadow education secretary. And uh, But I remember him saying to me when this was, uh, you know, in opposition, when he wanted to say some things that might imply a degree of public investment and was stopped from doing it, he said he, he thought he reckoned Gordon Brown and Ed Balls were monetarists. They were far from monetarists. Uh, Ed Balls was a self-declared Keynesian. Uh, and Gordon Brown was trying to find a way of legitimizing investing in public services without losing elections. Because if you lose elections, you can't invest a penny anywhere. You are impotent, as Labour is discovering again, uh, having lost so many in a row. But here is the difference between then and now. Inflation and a backdrop that is far more turbulent and seismic than 97. 97 took place in a relatively sort of calm context. The economy was growing. Public services were dire. uh, And that was one of the reasons why the economy was sort of growing because Ken Clark, who apart from being pro-European, was a sort of Thatcherite in economic policy terms, didn't believe in big public spending. So voters yearned for improvements to public services, but it was in the context of a growing economy. So even pledging a few pennies extra to reduce a few classroom sizes or a few pounds here and there uh, to reduce waiting lists in the NHS and so on, along with Blair's charismatic leadership where caution, he was a magician, he could make caution a form of excitement combined to do the things that Labour need to do in opposition, reassure and excite. So he could say at party conferences, Labour's big idea was partly education, 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 huge cheers. And as I say, the only spending pledge uh, was a a, a relatively small reduction in classroom sizes um, to be paid for by a relatively minor measure of public spending. And each item in Labour's 97 manifesto uh, was carefully costed, but inevitably incremental. And they famously pledged to stick to Tory spending plans, even though Ken Clark, the then Chancellor, was saying privately and publicly subsequently, he had no intention of sticking to them himself. They were so, I think he called them, eye-wateringly tight. And Gordon Brown also pledged uh, not to put up income tax in the whole of the next parliament, already accepting part of the framework as envisaged and implemented by 18 years of conservative rule. And as a result of that, they didn't fall into any tax and spend traps, but they were pretty constrained when they came into power. And they did come into power with that huge majority because the reassurance was on those lines. You know, I know you don't trust us to spend money, but we're not going to spend very much. And by the way, every halfpenny will be accounted for by popular tax rises like a one-off tax on the then privatised utilities. Now we come to uh, the current situation and you can hear the echo. Uh, Labour's plan for inflation, in inverted commas, is a one-off tax 
on the uh, energy companies who have made a ton of money, which they don't know quite what to do with. Uh, so Labour suggest. Um, now, that one off uh, tax on privatised uh, energy companies is fine. Um, but obviously, uh, we are in a new situation, unrecognisable from 19. 19- 97, where there was no threat from inflation. There had been no global financial crash. There had been no Brexit. There had been no pandemic. And and certainly there had been no European war involving Russia invading Ukraine. Now, these epic events mean that the next election will be fought in a wholly different context. And you can see the sort of context from the reaction to Rishi Sunak's spring statement, which we all reflected on last week. It was so interesting that Rishi Sunak, a figure sort of, if you like, trapped in the ideology of the 1980s, a photo of Nigel Lawson in his office, and Yet, and and, and that whole statement was designed in the hope that it would please the Tory newspapers and so on, and it didn't. All the Tory newspapers said, what you should be doing more, what more are you going to be doing uh, to address this standard of living question, which incidentally Tory editors of those newspapers know their readers are becoming suddenly gripped by. In other words, once again, and it's the third or arguably fourth big event that has triggered this. People want government to do more. It began with the 2008 crash when the banks pleaded for the state to intervene. And no doubt also uh, those who had accounts in banks that were about to go bust were hugely relieved when they could still take money out, you know, from the cash machine and all the rest of it. It was a demand for the state to do more. And in a way, the same applies to Brexit. The Brexiteers' vision of Brexit on the whole was Britain becoming a sort of Singapore, low-tax, low-regulation economy. The opposite has happened. As we saw when there were the uh, petrol shortages in the autumn because there weren't enough deliverers of the uh, petrol. There was a, a sudden shortage. And Boris Johnson hailed this as a benefit of Brexit, not a problem. He said that if there was a labour shortage, that is good news for British workers because their wages will go up to meet the demand for more workers. And in a way, that's the sort of opposite the to the kind of light regulated uh, low tax uh, economy as envisaged by the sort of devotees of Brexit on the right. It was a sort of celebration of government intervention on a big scale, preventing Labour from coming in from Europe, the end of the free movement of Labour. So there was in effect an import control on Labour, big, big intervention in markets. And as a result of that, Boris Johnson assumed wages would rise in Britain. And he saw that as good news, even though it would have implications for prices and all the rest of it. It, He was actually lifting Tony Benn's alternative economic strategy and his support for import controls. And then we had, obviously, the pandemic, where the plea for the government to intervene was so huge, even Rishi Sunak, 
became a sort of active statist with his furlough scheme. He had no choice. The economy would have collapsed completely. There would have been no economy to uh, revive when the pandemic sort of came to an end. When I say sort of, it's far from ending, as we all know. But in Boris Johnson's mind, it's ended. So massive, massive government intervention. And here with the Ukraine war uh, fueling inflation, do more, do more. And Sunak, I think, has been thrown by this. And he is going to have to do more, whether he can put it off until his autumn budget or whether he has to do more in the summer. Who knows? Now, in 97, the context was very different. There was still a mood, and certainly in the all-powerful world of Tory newspapers, a mood of uh, the government should do as little as possible. And rightly, and this is another lesson from 97 that Keir Starman definitely needs to heed, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had wooed the media successfully. They had the Sun on side and all the others, more or less, um, though not the Times, not the Daily Mail, it's worth noting, for all that effort. Uh, But they had enough. Um, to uh, have a kind of feel-good factor in the media, which influences BBC coverage and all the rest of it. Uh, They were right to do it. But now these papers are saying, do more. Why didn't Rishi Sunak do more? You know, mail headlines, even the Express and so on. So this is a very different mood uh, in which Labour makes its moves. And it is difficult because... Already, uh, Tory central office, well-resourced with money from Russia and all the rest of it that it's had over the years, will be making notes of every single halfpenny implicitly being spent by any shadow cabinet member. They will add it up and say these are Labour's hidden taxes at the next election. For those of you who listened to my talk on the 92 election, the Tories plan to fight that kind of election next time against Labour. And so there are risks in saying anything that implies spending increases. However, in this new context, there are risks in not doing so as well. I uh, was interested when Keir Starmer gave a few interviews last week. Instead of there being sort of implicit praise for this very cautious incrementalism, you know, raging inflation, uh, Labour's plan is a a one-off tax. He was asked, uh, what is Labour's big idea? And he came back with our big idea for now is the one-off windfall tax and a one-off windfall tax on uh, profits from energy companies he knows will be popular. Although I gather uh, people tell me that it actually hasn't got through to voters that that is, you know, their kind of fundamental big idea. Um, But it won't be unpopular. Uh, But that is not a big idea in the context of inflation, which say if there was a one uh, off uh, windfall tax now, that would be good news. It's a good proposition and will reassure quite a lot of voters now if it were to be implemented because their bills would be lower uh, without, I suspect, deterring companies from future investment, which is the Tory argument for not doing it. But inflation doesn't go away in a month. When it arrives on a scale as it is at the moment, it tends to feed on itself. And you can see it already happening, uh, you know, with questions about what should public sector pay awards be to take into account of inflation and so on. 
Now, I think it's absolutely wise of Rachel Reeves when interviewed not to commit to saying that public sector pay awards must keep up with inflation because already you are making big, explicit public spending commitments, uh, which will be added on to the Conservative Central Office attack on hidden taxes. But it's simply not enough to use a one-off tax as a protective shield and uh, assume you can carry on much longer on that basis. There are too many epic things that are happening now. There are too many epic things that have happened. Voters who might have turned to cautious incrementalism in 1997 are voters who've uh, gone for Brexit, a revolutionary upheaval in Britain's economy and Britain's place in the world. Um, And they have become more used to the state being a tool of benevolent intervention, um, as we saw with the pandemic. um, And as we are seeing in their demands for some sort of action now. Now, my view is that their big idea should be in terms of addressing inflation. We don't know what inflation will be doing by the time of the election. But in terms of framing arguments now, I mean, they're doing the thing that uh, Blair and Brown did in the build up to 1997, condemning Tory tax rises. That's fair enough because you can get them on trust as well as competence. But to land that attack, you have to have some kind of credible big idea yourselves. And I sense it should be around tackling as far as you can. And you have to be absolutely plain with people that partly inflationary forces are out of the control of any single government. But you can, to some extent, address the causes of inflation within the UK. And you can see some governments abroad doing it much more boldly than either the Tories or Labour are contemplating at the moment. In other words, you deal with demand. The supply issue, uh, there is no short-term solution. We saw Johnson popping over to Saudi Arabia, good relationship with Saudi Arabia, came back with nothing in terms of pumping more oil out in the short term. Now, alternative energy and Labour have got radical green ideas, which... um, feed into the longer-term solution. But what about dealing with some of the causes now in terms of demand? Um, It's interesting that I've I've read that the Italian government got pretty radical ideas which have already been implemented about uh, insulating homes to reduce demand. Now, it's easier in Italy. The weather is kinder. It's warmer for longer. The winters are relatively mild, etc., But apparently, the government there as a form of investment, not as a form of kind of a reckless altruism, have got very good generous packages for home insulation. And that is uh, one obvious way. I mean, a lot of homes in Britain, not, not obviously the modern ones, but some of the older ones, you might as well be sitting in a field in howling gales with the, the, the sort of the, the kind of cracks and the winds gusting in. I speak from personal experience of a house where it's like living in a deep freeze, however much heating you put on. Now, insulation will reduce demand. Um, uh, I've read also that the German government are offering a really good regional public transport 
passes to encourage more people to get out of cars and use uh, buses and trains. Now, admittedly, in Germany, both buses and trains are much better and more uh, regular and reliable and connected and coordinated than the fractured British system, uh, which is so uh, chaotic. But it's a pretty good idea. And I know it is because I know people, I mean, you know, I'm far too young to experience these things. But I know people who get these um, over 60 passes in London, uh, where you can travel free. I'm not saying it should be free, of course, that'd be too expensive. But uh, a good deal for a regional uh, bus train pass sounds like a good idea. And these people, some of them really well off, never go near their cars. They say, oh, yeah, I can go in for free on the tubes or whatever. It makes a difference in the way people use their cars. I mean, that's just a couple of examples of lever pulling that could reduce the demand on energy until the broader position is secure, either with alternative energy um, or in the short term, the highly unlikely, as I speak, uh, this whole Ukraine nightmare is resolved. Um, but even if it is, Russia is clearly an unreliable source of energy. Now, I know Britain doesn't hugely rely on it. But if uh, Russian gas becomes scarce, the demand for other sources soar, and the price goes up in Britain as elsewhere. So there needs to be, and this won't necessarily emerge in focus groups where people will say all the time, oh, we don't, we don't want, we don't trust Labour to spend very much. Thank you very much. You know, the context is so different. There has to be, from 97, there has to be bigger thinking uh, than the 97 incrementalism. And the only way to do it is to frame big, arguments and make the case. You know, I think uh, one of the things Blair and Brown did, actually, they were obsessed with sound bites. You know, it was the era of the sound bites, and they thought they'd almost discovered the art of the soundbite. But they also did big speeches. To uh, Blair was always put, doing big speeches about how the 20th century had been the conservative century because of the split on the anti-conservative side with Labour and the Liberals and so on, the sort of Roy Jenkins thesis, and that there the, the needed to be a binding together. Yeah, big kind of – by the time of the 97 election, he could publish an anthology of big speeches. And Gordon Brown, the same. And they need to do big speeches, looking at learning the lessons of inflation from the 70s and the early 80s. You know, for good reasons, noble reasons in the 70s, the Labour government, the Heath government threw money at it and it didn't work. It just meant inflation got bigger and bigger. Um, but you don't want to follow the Thatcher model where you squeeze money out of the economy, you know, the sort of monetarist route where unemployment soared, communities got left behind, and so on. You need to find another way of dealing with the root causes. And if you kind of frame it like that and then come up with some kind of totemic policies which are bigger than a one-off windfall tax, I think you create the space to do it. And if you do it forcefully and credibly, um, in a way that reassures and excites the two things Labour have to do in opposition, you then have more space to attack the Sunak approach 
and go for Tory tax rises and all the rest of it. But you do have to think bigger and be bolder in order for that space to be created. Uh, it's, it's so different. And you can see how inflation throws everyone. I think Sunak thought, you know, with his promise, that silly childish promise of an income tax cut just before the next election would be the passport for him uh, to get hailed in the Tory supporting papers the next day. Instead, he was slaughtered because we're in a different place, Rishi Sunak, from the 1980s. But we are also in a very different place from 94 to 97 where, and it was a form of genius, Tony Blair made caution uh, uh, very exciting. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're new, right? You know, we're not going to do what old Labour did, right? You know, we're going to stick to income tax, stick to spending plans. I was very, very effective um, and absolutely clearly thought through. And by the way, there were radical things in there, but they didn't cost them the minimum wage, a review was going to be set up, uh, a commission to decide on the level once they were safely in power. Uh, Electoral reform, but it was going to take the form of a referendum. So it wouldn't necessarily happen, of course, didn't. Uh, You know, there were lots of things in there uh, to excite, but they were cautiously framed. And that's another way of doing it. Um, But yes, there are lessons from the rare occasion where occasions where Labour win from opposition. But to follow them too closely is a bigger risk than deciding to look at the current situation and think big. So there we are. There are my thoughts um, on the situation for Labour. It's obviously kind of on one level, a dream, really, when you think about it, with Partygate re-erupting and a cost of living crisis. Um, I was uh, presenting the week in Westminster on Radio 4 on Saturday, and uh, Isabel Hardman uh, from The Spectator, who was on the panel, reminded me that um, Ed Miliband did the cost of living crisis, and it didn't get him very far. He lost the election, famously, um, in 2015. But it wasn't as acute as it is now. You know, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised, and I know some people, you know, Treasury uh, people, in, officials, uh, worry that inflation could go into double figures this year. So it, it's on a different scale to 2015. Um, uh, so there are big opportunities for an opposition. You know, in, in the late 70s, Margaret Thatcher seized inflation. And most people, I think, didn't look in detail at what she was proposing to do with it you know, monetarism. Um, They kind of bought her thing of, uh, you know, my father's shop in Grantham, he never spent more than he earned. And a government cannot spend more than it earns. She was a populist instinctively. She could do it. It was kind of economically dodgy, to put it politely. But um, it had a kind of capacity to connect with voters. Oh, yeah, yeah, that grocer's shop is well run compared to the chaos of the late 70s. Oh, we'll vote for her, you know. But there were implications in uh, what happened then. Anyway, I'm going to go to your questions now, if that's okay with all of you. Uh, So let's go. (music) 
Oh, yeah. Before I read the first uh, question out, uh, Peter Hans, I bumped into one of uh, the many podcast listeners, Peter Hans, uh, uh, do on Friday evening. And he said, oh, see, I've, I've emailed you a few times. I said to Peter, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll look back and, and read one of them out. Well, Peter, I've looked back. I can't find any. So are you sure you got the right email address if so well, if not or if even if you did i haven't got them because i was you told me there was one about alan duncan's diaries which sounded interesting so i'm going to read out the email address to all of you and incidentally it's been read out if you're out running at the moment um or rowing it's around 32 30 here's the address steve rick 1414 at icloud.com so uh uh, Peter, please do do another email, a new one, um, or whatever. But it was very nice to meet you at a do on Friday night. Uh, those who have managed to get through, uh, Paul Cooper is looking at the way uh, there is a different focus in terms of risk from governments guiding people or companies or the economy to some extent, taking the decisions on risk to, as he puts it, loading individuals with risk. And he says that may well be libertarian. But why have politicians, when they take hardly any risks and are some of the select few to be in the room for any benefits? And there has been, obviously, in the context of uh, COVID, with the complete lift of restrictions and personal responsibility. Personal, And, of course, no one takes personal responsibility. Um, I was talking with friends the other day and, you know, there was no uh, – they had been to the theatre in London, not a single person wearing masks and so on. And if government uh, doesn't provide part of the uh, shaping of risk – Far from being free, but we risk being ill, which is not a form of freedom. Uh, so I agree with you, uh, Paul. The balance has gone way, way too far in favour of a kind of fantasy personal responsibility. Uh, thank you uh, for that. Uh, Buxton Phil, Philip Rowe writes, uh, hope you're well, loving the podcast. Oh, thank you very well. And all of us lot. The whole community he loves, he says, thank you. And still just pottering around Buxton, walking the dog, consuming the bread others bake as people run past me on their 10Ks, presumably listening to you, all of them, Phil. All will have the uh, the Rock and Roll Politics podcast as they're running uh, past you. No doubt about that. Uh, returning to the subject of co-payments, if it's OK with you, it is. He's a big fan, Phil. I'm sure they work. He says that um, after my stint at uni, I went to work in student accommodation temporarily and am still working in the sector 19 years later. Without question, I've seen students become more serious and more studious in that time as the fees have escalated to very significant amounts. You'd barely see a student awake before 11 a.m. back in 2004. Now students seem to study all hours, working harder and getting rightly annoyed at the curtailing of face-to-face -face lectures even after COVID. My university, uh, Manchester, making news on this. I wonder if you agree that co-payments have, in a seeming contradiction, also broken the link between cost and value in other ways where the public is concerned. But some, Phil, uh, you, you've heard me on this. I mean, I, I agree with you. Others have emailed and said they disagree and that students still have no leverage 
compared, and there's no real difference on that front compared with when some of us lot went and didn't pay a penny personally. But I sense in any area where there, I'm a bit of a fan of co-payment. You have to work out very carefully what form it should take. But it does give you a sense of a stake, really, in a kind of public service, um, greater than being just the passive recipient, I think. I'm not wholly sure because I know others of you uh, disagree in terms of students and all the rest of it. But I think there is an argument for it. I dare to say I think there's an argument in the NHS as well um, in in certain fields. But um, it's bloody complicated because you obviously have to exclude some from co-payments and when you start excluding some it becomes quite expensive to collect the payments and decide where the line is that people don't pay and all the rest i'm fully aware but i've it feels as if that is a way of raising money that has only reached limits now the fact that uh, the whole tuition fee thing has become so highly charged it makes it even harder, but I'm a. I can see that the, there are ways of making co-payments a positive development. Uh, Noah Keat uh, on this subject. I'm a final year politics student, soon to graduate and enter the real world. There is no real world, Noah Keat. It's mad out there everywhere. We're, we're, it's all mad. Uh, I was initially opposed to tuition fees before charging, changing my mind, and recognizing their progressive. Uh, necessary policy. Why? Because I think that the principle that those have financially benefited from the privilege of a university education should make a financial contribution back to the exchequer is an admirable and sensible one. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Thank you for that argument, which I sort of kind of agree with. Susan Lintott has sent me a link to a really interesting article which proposes a time-limited graduate tax as a form of contributing via students um, to university funding, being more effective on many different levels. And uh, Susan, thank you for uh, emailing uh, me the link, which I've read. And it seems to me there's quite an, there might be space to look at a graduate tax again why that is different from certainly the tuition fees as it's now being proposed by the government. Jerry Fox says, Hi Steve, what are the consequences of the food we prepare, cook and eat on our political contemplations? I was due to be travelling today, uh, which was a Saturday in April, this last one actually, to embark on the ultimate Portuguese road trip from north to south along the N2. That sounds like living the dream. But unfortunately, I failed a late fitness test with a positive COVID-19 result. What a nightmare, Jerry. What a nightmare. Uh, I was massively disappointed, though the weight of this emotion was lightened with anticipating uh, listening to your latest episode. I feel a huge responsibility, uh, Jerry. There were you about to go on this dream trip in Portugal. And this is compensation, listening to this. Uh, I can see it has equivalents. You know, you could be in the sunshine, perhaps stopping for a drink in Lisbon before hitting the road. And uh, yeah, but this is as good. Having COVID listening to this is it kind of, yeah, I think I can see an equivalence. Um, my son and I are regular listeners 
uh, and your son, is it uh, Josie? Jo- Jose? Anyway, recently completed his MA in broadcast journalism at City University. Okay. Yeah, I know it well, that department. Whilst living with a family and during his studies, he managed to persuade his host to listen to your show. This is getting better and better. She's now an avid listener. Oh, yeah. Anyway, in your latest episode, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, you shared listener Hugh's political reflections, which arose whilst he was preparing a chicken korma. Yeah, I remember it was a good question. Inspired by chicken korma. And went on to add, this is me, you also contemplate politics whilst cooking, but you don't eat chicken. I was wondering whether you practice plant-based maximalism, an approach where you simply nudge-nudge towards maximising plant-based products with every meal and so reducing meat consumption. Uh, Or are you positioned elsewhere on the dietary spectrum? And where does where does how does this affect your political reflections while you're cooking? Well, here's a revelation to you all. I've, I'm a lifelong vegetarian. Before it was cool. I don't know what the taste of meat is because I, I have never really done it. I don't have do it, not do it for moral reasons. But when I discovered where meat came from, I couldn't bear the idea of doing it and stopped. It's the it's the Paul McCartney reason. I don't know if you've heard him interviewed it was he was much older but he said oh yeah Linda and I were looking at kind of our sheep on the Mull of Kintyre you know and uh, we kind of said to each other we eat these beautiful animals and we decided to stop and I can't it's that kind of thing that um, has influenced me now whether it changes what we think about while we cook you've raised Jerry Fox from Exeter Devon a profound question and I don't know the answer. So anyway, thank you very much. Connor Jones, I was interested by an emailer last week who said their one woman focus group of a Tory voter, it was her mother, Denise from Shoreham, who walks on the beach there whilst listening to the podcast, uh, had turned on the Tories. Yeah, her one woman focus group, her mother had been, I think, lifelong Tory, but had turned recently. This, I believe, isn't a single instance, but a wider trend. The polls showed that most of the voters the Conservatives lost during the Partygate scandal were women. This has also been my experience with my family. My mum and gran both vote Conservative almost every time. The last time my gran voted Labour was for Harold Wilson in 1966. Blimey. Right, that was a long time ago. Now both have told me they won't vote Conservative and won't vote at all at the next election. They, like most middle-class women, I presume, find Johnson repulsive. Well, it's interesting that they find him uh, repulsive, though not wholly unsurprising. Also interesting, they're not going to vote Labour like she did in 1966. They're just not going to vote. That doesn't necessarily mean a Tory government will be dislodged by people not voting. It might do. Depends which constituencies they're in. But Connor sees an opportunity for Labour pitching to middle class women on education, keeping bills low, keeping the streets safe and climate change. He says that could really cut through far more than the false Brexit patriotism, which uh, Johnson will undoubtedly employ. Yeah, I've got no doubt he will, he will do that. He says, I think there's a very clever pitch just waiting to be crafted. 
if only Labour would pull their finger out and realise it. Do you agree? Well, I do. I kind of gave some other examples of of, of a pitch, but I, I think you're right. Let's see whether they create, which I think you imply is required, an excitement along with the reassurance. Uh, from Geraldine, thank you very much for that and your focus group. Keep us informed, Connor, on where your focus group is moving or not moving. Geraldine Henley, dear Steve, happy early Easter. Thank you, Geraldine, and to you. Uh, do you have a King's Place show coming up quite soon, Geraldine? I'm just taking a short break and then they'll be back. But thanks so much for asking. And I'll let you know through the podcast and other means when I do. You'll certainly get to hear about it. Uh, Keith from Finchley. COVID figures are again soaring, and I've heard scant criticism of Boris Johnson and his tame scientists for abolishing restrictions. So you're with uh, Paul Cooper on this issue of the balance of risk, as am I. At PMQs, he uh, boasted about the decision claiming that Labour would have kept us in lockdown. And on the night when relatives of the bereaved were presenting a petition at 10 Downing Street, he was leading his MPs to a celebratory party. Unbelievable. Yeah, I've got a feeling COVID is going to return as quite a big news story. It, 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 It hasn't gone. And yet there is an assumption that it has. And that combination is quite explosive. Now, what form it comes back partly depends on things like the next set of variants, but also on the way hospitals deal with the current surge of people coming in. Thank you very much, uh, Keith from Finchley. And now uh, we move on to Andy Kemp, who says, I've been an avid listener to your podcast since the very beginning. Oh, thank you, Andy. So this time, oh, yeah. Uh, not sure if you recall that I live in the constituency of North East Derbyshire with Sheffield to the north and the fantastic Peak District to the west. Lucky you. Our MP, of course, is one Lee Rowley. Yeah, I must email Lee Rowley and tell him to listen to this podcast. He, he, he's, a, he's one of its heroes. I was interested to hear a contribution on last week's podcast from my namesake, Andrew Stewart, from nearby Sheffield. He informed you that his brother was moving to North East Derbyshire. So there will be two of us to keep you updated on Mr. Rowley's local activities. Yeah, I remember that uh, email last week. For new listeners this week, Lee Rowley was predicted to be a rising star in the Tory party on this podcast and at a King's Place live show. And ever since he soared, he was a mere backbencher there. Then he was promoted in the reshuffle. And, you know, you watch him. I mean, he's, he, God is not out of his possible uh, roles in the future. I've mentioned to you that before that whilst I admire Lee Rowley as a local constituency MP, by the way, at the Live King's Cloak Play Show, I'd never heard of him. But, you know, he's on my mind all the time now. Anyway, back to the email. I don't agree with his politics nor his blinkered support for the PM. Um, my question to you is to what extent will Mr. Rowley's future ambitions be impacted by the cost of living crisis? Isn't it again now that emails dominated? by the cost of living crisis. And Andy Kemp rightly points out that red wall voters, including in Lee Rowley's seat, are going to be deeply impacted. Um, and he also points out, uh, Andy Kemp, that uh, the consequences, that word again, he puts it in capital letters. By the way, on those rock and roll politics mugs, it says a cup of consequences. 
because it's the theme, isn't it, really, of the podcast. I believe, however, the consequences of Brexit and other contributory factors will exacerbate the cost of living crisis. I completely agree. And by the way, when Sunak was interviewed by the Treasury Select Committee, he sort of acknowledged uh, the economic negative impact of Brexit so far. Um, So, yeah, I think um, Lee Rowley and many other... Tory MPs are going to go back to their constituents each weekend uh, in the coming months and get a barrage of stuff about cost of living. And that is going to be really interesting because when they return to Westminster, they're going to say to uh, if they bump into Rishi Sunak or others in the Treasury, you've got to do more, you've got to do more. So they are going to be part of the chorus of government, do more, do more, which is Again, to return to my reflections, so different from the mood in the build-up to 1997 and indeed the 1980s, where the 1980s is all about how can government do less. That was the only fashionable question. Laundry Joe. Uh, what advice, Laundry Joe, for new listeners? He listens to the podcast doing his laundry. Not as glamorous as baking bread and running 10K and walking in the Peak District and all that kind of thing, but pretty useful use of time. What advice would you give Keir Starmer to deal with the repeated questions he's getting regarding uh, sex-based rights and trans rights, which appear designed to force the politicians to annoy one side in a debate where both sides take fixed positions? How can they go on saying, I don't accept the premise of the question? At what point do they have to pick a side and deal with the consequences? Yeah, it's a very good question. And Laundry Joe, I don't know the answer. I agree that a form of words which say, look, you know, I'm not going to answer the question as you put it, is just not enough of a protective shield uh, in this debate. It is very difficult. Most people do not go and join political parties because of their views on trans rights. They join them and are exercised, especially now, by the role of the state, the role of markets, how they can make a difference to public services, how they can make a difference in all kinds of ways, but not this. And I'm not quite sure uh, what the form of words are, uh, but I agree with you that they haven't got there yet. Wes Streeting was praised for the way he answered the question in an interview Um uh, in a way that was more precise, which I, ca- I can't remember, to be honest, what it is. It, 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 it remains staggering to me on one level that this is so high up the political agenda. And I wonder whether it will go down a bit. I know Boris Johnson and others have put it up there because it's it's so tricky for Starmer. Uh, but now they've got the Tories, uh, a Tory MP who's come out as trans. I wonder if it's harder for them to sort of make... Uh, mischief out of it. Um, But there has to be uh, uh, the art of opposition. I don't know what it is in this case, is to appear absolutely clear about a policy when you're not being absolutely clear. Um, And what do you think, Laundry Joe? I'm not quite sure uh, what the answer is to that. I, I do have 
a, a thousand ideas a minute about what Labour should do on X, Y and Z. I'm not wholly clear on that one. Um, uh, Philip uh, Gil, thank you, Laundry Joe. Get on with the laundry. Stop asking impossible questions, please, next time. Uh, Philip Gilfus writes, I'm currently reading the Tony Benn Diaries 2001 to 2007. Yeah, by the way, if any of you are ill with COVID and looking for something to read, the Benn Diaries are great. Um, this volume is towards the end of his life, really. Um, but God, at the height of you know the 70s and the early 80s, they are take you there. Uh, anyway, uh, Philip writes, and his interactions with Ted Heath made me curious about your thoughts. Uh, is there a purpose in former PMs staying in the House of Commons? Currently, we have Theresa May sitting on the back benches, and Miss Ted Heath stayed on decades after leaving number 10. Do these ex-PMs generally have a post-number 10 legacy in the House uh, when they serve, or would it be better if they left? It's a really good question, Philip, because the evidence is very mixed. I mean, Ted Heath did stay on for decades. He spoke often being critical of the Thatcher government and made only very limited impact. Theresa May, too, has chosen every now and again to throw a sort of grenade towards uh, Johnson. But there, Johnson is still standing. Margaret Thatcher stayed on for one more parliament, highly critical of the Maastricht Treaty. Um, And yet they are awkward figures, these figures who have been uh, at their peak, at the front there, you know, behind the dispatch box, taking part in economic parliamentary debates as prime minister, answering questions as prime ministers. And there they are then as backbench MPs. Um, So their role is limited. But um, every now and again, you feel the value of them being there. Weighty figures with experience, with no future ambition, can actually be uh, very interesting at times uh, when they speak. And I think it is a shame that Blair and Cameron disappeared uh, very quickly. Blair immediately after becoming prime minister, after leaving as prime minister, and uh, Cameron soon after the 2016 Brexit referendum. If they had stayed on for a start, Cameron would have got in less trouble probably because he couldn't have done the green sales. You have to declare everything as an MP. It's one of the reasons why they all leave now to make a ton of money. So, you know, I think in a way it's better if they do stay on for a bit, better for their reputation, not their bank balances. Um, But also sometimes their interventions can cause waves as former prime ministers. So, yeah. So a good question. And it's a question to end with. We've been going for nearly an hour. So those of you who've run should have finished your 10Ks. If you're walking, I hope you're out in good countryside. Those of us, you know, kind of indoors, I hope you're great. Um, So that's it. Just a reminder again, thank you, those of you who signed up to the uh, Patreon. Uh, It means I can do these things. I'm in a posh studio, thanks to the brilliant Podmasters and their team. And as I say, the next one of the bonus podcasts will be in there now because it's the start of April. It's the 1992 election. So please do sign up and be part of that group. And as for all of us lot, well, um, it's the Easter recess, but there's a huge amount going on. And in the coming days, I think there will be more on Partygate, the horrors of Ukraine. Johnson's going to publish their alternative 
energy paper later this week. It will be interesting to see how precise those propositions are, giving, given Rishi Sunak's 1980s-style hunger to keep control of spending. And what will we be reflecting on next week? Well, who knows? But I think we better all get together to make sense of it all once again. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. Thank you.